0: Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org.
1: In this episode, we'll be hearing about the number four priority, assessment and monitoring.
0: We will hear from spine surgeon Paul Koleonink, physiotherapist Sukvinda Kelsey-Ryan, and Paige Howard, a person with cervical myelopathy.
1: My name is Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org.
0: And my name is Dr. Michelle Starkey, scientist and director of myelopathy.org.
1: This is AO Spine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters.
0: Welcome everyone to this special podcast series with Myelopathy Matters. So what's this episode all about, Ben?
1: Well, we're covering the top 10 research priorities that emerged from AO spine, DCM, uh, which included a research prioritization exercise. And the importance of prioritization really is to accelerate progress by consolidating research investment, effort, energy into key clinical uncertainties that if answered could make a huge impact on outcomes in a short period of time. And so AOSPY and Rico DCM brought together people living and working with DCM to define what are the top ten research priorities. And in this podcast series, we're exploring each priority with experts from around the world to understand why they matter and how they might be answered. And
0: today we're going to be focusing on priority number four, assessment and monitoring. Or as the full research question reads. What assessment tools can be used to evaluate functional impairment, disability, and quality of life in people with DCM? What instruments, tools, or methods can be used or developed to monitor people with DCM for disease progression or improvement either before or after surgical treatment? And I spoke to Paige Howard, who is someone living with myelopathy and also one of the volunteer administrators on the Myelopathy Support Facebook page by myelopathy.org. I asked Paige if she could tell us a little bit about her personal experience, along with that of her families, of assessment and monitoring methods for her DCM.
2: Prior to my surgery, I really didn't have any monitoring. There was a couple appointments with my general physician where I would go in and talk to her about just symptoms that I was having, but I had thought that they were my I have bursitis in one of my shoulders. I thought that was contributing to it. I wasn't sure if it was work related, just too many long hours at the computer was causing the issues. But initially, the the only monitoring I can say that I had was those first few appointments, which were few and far between with my general practitioner, I was trying to get a referral to see a specialist about my shoulder. And I think after a time, she brought up the possibility of x-raying my cervical spine, which at that point, I was in a lot of pain, and I wanted to stick with looking at my shoulder. But she did convince me we needed to take a look at the neck. And it was the appointments to the x-ray, That's where the radiologist uh, had some findings about some degenerative changes and arthritic situations going on, and also what appeared to be a stenosis. And so they referred me to a neurosurgeon, which prompted immediate need for surgery. Afterwards, there has been really no monitoring. I started having bladder problems, and balance issues was really bad. But I didn't know what was going on. I did have a really strange gait. <laughs> I, I walked very funny, very oddly, but it just felt better to walk like that. My body wanted to walk with, and I would drag my right leg. I got to where it would, the pain was so bad I didn't care what I walked like anymore. It's it's amazing when you have a busy lifestyle. So I, I believe that I suffered with it for quite a long time. The neurosurgeon said when he looked at my neck, it was a mess. And it's not something that happened overnight. Definitely, it's just that I personally didn't deal with it until it had progressed to where, when I I met the neurosurgeon, he wanted to do his next available appointment for surgery.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important lesson to all of us, isn't it? To start listening to your body when when these things start to happen.
2: It must have been so scary. It really was. It was. It was very very frightening. It was. Um, and then my fear also heightened my family's fear. And it it was trying to make that decision whether or not um, I would have the surgery because ultimately I did have a choice whether I would do the surgery or not, even though the doctor said if I didn't, that a, an accident, a fall, I was to the point that I could end up paralyzed. I was already losing a lot of feeling in my arms and my hands. I was in a lot of pain too during that time. And I know that it was it was hard on my family as well because they had to deal with their own fears. One of the things that concerned us all was after my six-month checkup with my neurosurgeon, it was pretty much, that's it, you're discharged from my care. And uh, that was surprising. I, I didn't have any follow-ups. You know, I asked him, is there anything I can do to prevent the next surgery? Because I know I have other levels that were in question. And he said, if it hurts, don't do it. And a lot of things in life, picking up my grandchildren, just simple things that you wouldn't think would cause so much pain or be problematic. I have to remember that it it does. It, it's important that I don't lift heavy things, that I don't overexert with my upper body because I, I pay for it, not just pain-wise, but it puts additional stress on those levels above and um, below my surgery site where it's fused.
0: Yeah, I think that's the most worrying thing, actually, the progressiveness of it.
2: It's an unsure time, uncertain time for me right now. So I was thinking about just this priority in general, and my interest in it, and I'm literally living it right now. I'm living the the reason why this is so important. My family is living through this right now. Why it's so important that a set of guidelines, and not just for patients but for physicians and the healthcare professionals that some type of monitoring tool, something that can be set in place that is standard I feel kind of left out there without any guidelines I think that there should be guidelines <laughs> I think it was that and my family feels the same way that this is a very important priority to research
0: so um given that what are your recommendations for approaching it or answering priority for
2: I know that research has to be done and that medical research takes funding. And I imagine that a lot of input needs to be looked at from both healthcare professionals and patients and people living with it, whether they've had the surgery or not. And I was thinking that if you could find patients and doctors and healthcare professionals willing to participate in studies where it could be recorded, monitoring could be recorded and testing over time, So that we could know the benefits to it, like a a team of healthcare professionals that are dedicated to to that and also able to pursue grants and fundings that these people work together. The more that we
0: monitor and assess people, the more this sort of data set we get of information about how DCM is behaving and you know how it is in different people and you know this will give a huge amount of information to the field to healthcare professionals as well as people suffering with it.
2: I was online and one of the things that was mentioned was smart technology and I stumbled upon some articles regarding that and kind of wrapped my mind a little bit more around that that if there were apps developed where people could on an ongoing basis log their symptoms you know, that is a way that they can be monitored. I I just thought that was very interesting.
0: Yeah, and I think it's the way things are going, isn't it? With everyone having a smartphone nearby or accessible, these types of things will become more popular and, and, you know, hugely useful for the field because of the huge amount of information that it's going to give.
2: This disease affects people over 50, and three to five years ago, it would be an obstacle thinking, oh, well, that not many people would would use it. You would be surprised how many grandma and grandpas have smartphones now (laughs) and are getting tech savvy because if you want to communicate with your grandchildren. So I think that it's increasingly more and more realistic.
1: So it's interesting listening to Paige's experience because, um, As a professional and particularly as has been echoed throughout really episode two and the importance of understanding the natural history, when we look at assessment and monitoring, we really have been interested really in trying to find better ways of of monitoring that sort of pre-surgical, that mild version of myelopathy. Yet here is Paige who's undergone surgery and she's living with a different frustration. She has had treatment, but she's very wary that things could come back and she doesn't want to, to miss out. On exactly when that is, that timing. And I was struck by a part of her interview where she says, you know, I'm literally living with this right now. I'm living the reason why this question is so important. Uh, And you can imagine that with what limited evidence we do have about how to diagnose myelopathy, that actually detecting recurrent disease is going to be even more difficult because much of medicine is about trying to establish somebody who has symptoms against somebody who doesn't. But if someone's been left with disability, it's it's very difficult to understand what is new in the context of you know existing sy- symptoms.
0: One of the things I've worked on in the past is the use of smart technology in rehab um, and also monitoring of people after traumatic injuries to the central nervous system. I think it has a really huge potential when it's done right. And as she mentions, we're also familiar with this type of technology these days. It's not novel or new to us uh, like it was in the past. So I think its use in the clinic is a real chance for us to improve assessments. And by that, I mean sort of make them more innovative, make them more meaningful and potentially more accurate accurate?
1: Yeah, I guess more individual. And it's obviously something, as you're aware, we're working on in in Cambridge very actively, and I hope really does represent the future. I think if we can talk about some of the positives that have come from COVID-19, one is certainly the recognition of the potential uh, for telemedicine, and certainly, you know, progression of medicine towards those sorts of solutions. And and hopefully that is something we can integrate into care of the next few years. So I think these issues around how we progress our assessment and monitoring really leads on to our next guest, Dr. Paul Koljonen, a consultant and honorary clinical assistant professor in spine surgery at Queen Mary Hospital, the University of Hong Kong. I started by asking him exactly what his perspectives were on why this priority is such an important goal for everyone involved.
3: I think assessment and monitoring is important in several aspects. First of all, as uh, clinicians and surgeons, it's, it helps us a lot with clinical decision-making, obviously, um, whether or not we offer a patient a conservative course of management or counsel the patient for surgery. So that kind of factors into our day-in, day-out counseling and approach towards patients. Now, also from a patient standpoint, helping the patient have a self-awareness of some progression of myelopathy symptoms, and in case of surgical intervention for possible neurological recovery or or lack thereof. Uh, The third thing is for us as clinicians to be able to follow up on our clinical outcomes. So to understand how our patients are doing with both conservative and surgical management, a way to monitor our patients' recovery rates, and also a guide for interventions from the rehabilitation aspect, so from the therapist's point of view. If you can't assess the outcomes, it is very difficult to progress through the training regime. Finally, for research, obviously it makes a difference on the kind of surgical strategies we use, the kind of pharmaceuticals we use, and how they affect the outcome. So I think having accurate assessment tools and ways of monitoring your patients over time, before and after treatment, makes a lot of sense and it's very important.
1: What do we currently use to sort of track and monitor myelopathy today?
3: The very careful and skilled neurological exam can actually give you a lot of information to confirm the diagnosis with a reasonable accuracy. Also, it can localize the level of lesion a lot of times. The other kind of assessment that we regularly use, and I'm sure around the world is done regularly, is a functional type of assessment. So what I mean by function is really What the patient is or is not able to do in his or her activity of daily living. A lot of times, these types of functional assessments are taken up by an allied health team, uh, such as an occupational or a physical therapist, and there are many aspects to these functional assessments. Uh, For example, from a physical standpoint, a patient might be concerned with his or her hand function, how, how dexterous his hands are, or perhaps they would be concerned with their balance, whether or not they're falling off or tipping off, how they can sense themselves in space, for example, and their sensation. So can you feel, do you have numbness? If you're reaching into your pocket for a set of keys, can you feel the keys? So these are some of the important physical aspects of patient function that we want to be able to quantify and monitor over time with good reliability, meaning that uh, if it's assessed by a certain clinician or a certain therapist, and the next time a patient comes back for a follow-up 12 months later, it can be reliably repeated. How reliable at the moment do you think it is that those assessments done at one time point accurately
1: can be repeated by somebody else, perhaps a different time point? Yeah, that's a good question.
3: You know, over the years, there have been a number of these sort of standardized scoring systems, you know, being developed. Even since the 1970s, we've been uh, using scores, for example, from our part of the world, from Japan, where they have a lot of cervical myelopathy. One of the tests that are being used all the time is the Japanese Orthopedic Association scores, in short, the JOA score. And it's also important when looking at these scores, not only that they're repeatable, but they make clinical sense. So for example, if a patient on on a score chart makes improvement, but does not feel any subjective improvement, how useful is the score? So coming back to the JOA, uh, I think one of the good things that has guided us to keep coming back to using this score is that the minimally clinically important difference in these scores have been well-defined. Their inter and intra-observer reliability are well-defined, and uh, we know that we can use this as a tool to track patients' progress before and after an intervention. Now, certainly there are other uh, scores that are out there that include quality of life measures in them and include more detailed assessment of particular functions in the body, for example, grip strength, for example, balance, for example, pain. But uh, still, I think armamentarium right now is still relatively limited to a certain few scores.
1: I guess when these tools were first developed we were really looking and evaluating gross changes with surgery and they are quite significant changes often. The differentiation between you know when someone should have non-operative management and operative management is quite a fine margin and perhaps in those circumstances those subtle changes over time are not being very well detected by these tools.
3: Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, obviously if you have a very uh, severe case of myelopathy with across the chart low scoring results in JOA and even with neurological deficits in 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 most motor power and muscle power and sensation then that's kind of an easy decision to make. But it is really the the borderline cases and also even the mild cases that present uh, the diagnostic and decision-making difficulty in day-to-day practice. Because if you look at the natural history data since the 1950s, the progression of cervical myelopathy is very variable. Obviously, for most patients, uh, they still deteriorate over time, but the pattern with which they deteriorate can be very different. Uh, Most patients uh, will will have a stepwise deterioration, but there are also some patients who dwindle slowly in their neurology. And there's a smaller group of patients who deteriorate very rapidly. So being able to identify the natural history for a certain patient has been very difficult. And for example, if there is a patient who you offered a wait and see approach, but then they came back uh, in a short period of time having deteriorated a lot, that would obviously not be an ideal situation. So I would say some of the limitations uh, occur in the mild and moderate borderline group of patients. One of the first points I made was self-awareness of myelopathy progression. For me, I oftentimes educate my patients exactly what to look out for between follow-ups. So if they have a certain change in the way they feel, the way their hands move, the way they feel their feet on the ground, uh, obviously advise them to come back earlier rather than wait for a longer follow-up. But then sometimes patients, especially elderly, are not able to report that very well, or they don't have that self awareness, and you miss the golden opportunity to intervene sometimes. When you're looking at being able to detect more sensitive changes, perhaps even prognosticate the natural history of certain patients, uh, how they might fare in the longer time frame, you could perhaps even uh, predict severe neurological loss in case of injury or uh, rapid deterioration due to a minor neck injury which brings about the role of prophylactic surgery is kind of a controversial issue uh, at the moment, prophylactic surgery for cervical myelopathy or for silent cervical myelopathy. But certainly, I think one of the directions for for research is prognostication and how that guides our aggressiveness towards surgical management.
1: What would be the ideal tool that you could have use of in, in your practice? What would be the key features or characteristics of that tool that made
3: it so good? first of all, has to be safe, Uh, that has to be sensitive and specific, meaning that if a certain patient has a condition, you could easily or safely pick it up or accurately pick it up. And if a patient doesn't have a certain condition, you could accurately or safely reassure the patient that he doesn't have that condition. So those are some of the basic concepts when we are talking about what a good test is and what isn't a good test. But furthermore, it has to be available. So in certain Uh, single-payer systems might be a long wait for an MRI for example and this might in certain situations delay treatment and that is certainly uh, undesirable.
0: So I think that really led on very well from Paige's interview, sort of more from the clinical side. Uh, and for me, Paul was really advocating the need for accurate monitoring of patients over time so that we can make more informed decisions um, about things like their surgery.
1: I absolutely agree. And I think that's that's really the critical concept that we, that we keep returning to with all of these top research priorities. I mean, the take-home message is that if we can better time our surgical treatment, then we would transform outcomes for this condition pretty quickly. And and much of what we rely on today is that ability to very accurately detect progression. That's a really key trigger for defining our treatment plans, etc. When we can be really confident that the benefits of a surgery outweigh the potential risks of it. And I think as Paul points out, we need to, to really improve the sensitivity and the accuracy of our tools. But there is also probably a lot more we can do immediately. And Paul also highlights that, you know, for example, the MJOA tool, which is, is part of the international guidelines now. That does bring some objectivity and consistency to the assessments
0: You know, the point he makes about these needing to be reliable. They're sensitive to pick up these small changes. They're objective. And they're also measuring, and I think this is a really important thing, something that is useful to the patient as well as the doctor that's assessing them and coming up with their treatment plan. And I spoke to Dr. Sukvinda Kelsey-Ryan, a clinician scientist and professor of physical therapy at the University of Toronto, about her approach to this priority. I started by asking her how we currently measure the severity of DCM.
4: The primary method by which we classify injury uh, is using a scale called the Modified Japanese Orthopaedic Assessment, and I will refer to that as the MJOA. Essentially, myelopathy occurs over time. It is the gradual degeneration of structures that surround the spinal cord, As the structures degenerate, they begin to put pressure on the spinal cord. As the degeneration progresses, so does the compression. So because it's a temporal process, the spinal cord will respond by adapting to the compression, and that's usually over time. Functionally, you will see an individual present with mild deficits, and as time passes, you'll see fluctuations in mild disease. Sometimes they'll get better, sometimes they'll get worse one can also stay mild indefinitely. But once they start to progress into the moderate range, you typically will see a pattern of decline from from that point forward. So when we talk about what's mild, moderate, and severe, we're really referring to the score that they get on the MJOA. The MJOA is scored out of 18. It looks at sensory function, motor function in the hands and arms, motor function in the legs, and bowel and bladder function. And If you score somewhere between 17 and 15, you would be considered mild. The deficit does not usually prevent the individual from living a relatively normal life. If an individual presents with moderate disease, they typically fall between the range of 14 and 12 on the MJOA. And here an individual will have enough impairment that they will feel significant effect to their daily activities of life. And then severe is when an individual presents with a score of less than 11. And here, an individual would present with a significant loss of function, likely a great deal of pain, and
0: definitely an inability to work. So I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about that, what your approach has been to understanding the assessment of mild myelopathy and your experience of that.
4: Where my interest really came into play around looking for detectable change or or what we might call early identification of disease was really spending a great deal of time with a surgical group. And um, how they uh, diagnosed, identified and created their response for whether they were going to offer surgery or not was of interest to me because I'm a physical therapist by background. So our methodology around treating a patient is to Diagnose them through assessment. So, to take a very detailed assessment of the problem, and then from there you formulate your treatment plan. And it was clear when I was working in a surgical environment that there was very little from a tools perspective for these surgeons to use on the patients to determine what their clinical deficit was. So, they would use an MRI, often a subjective story. And I just believe that the measurement approach for this population was not rigorous enough. Mild myelopathy patients would typically come to us. And one of the, the problems we had was determining whether they're changing or not, or whether we could pick up any change. So I came up with a battery of testing that would tell us everything functional we needed to know. And that included both the upper extremities, the walking, the balance, strength, a, a variety of clinical indicators that might change during your course of myelopathy. And we essentially field tested these tools, all of these tools on about 150 patients. So we we looked at a baseline and then a a follow-up assessment. We also did some MRI assessments on these patients to really see which tools show us the most change, which ones pick up the most subtle change, etc. And one of them came out to be the GRASP myelopathy. And we look at strength, sensation, and we look at dexterity of the hand in that tool. And we feel that it pretty much picks up some of the subtle differences that mild patients present with and then allow us to follow them over time, whether it's watching them, observing them only, or whether it's related to having surgery and following them post-operatively.
0: And what I think is nice about the GRASP is it's so functional, isn't it? I mean, you're testing activities that people would be using in daily life.
4: Absolutely. So the whole purpose is to look at impairment, which is the sensory and motor deficit. And then how does that impairment impact their ability to perform a functional task? Do they have a problem, but then does it affect them performing a task as well? What's interesting is when we did look at the reliability and and the validity of the tool, we typically found that if we had 100 patients with mild disease we would classify them with grasp myelopathy. And it would show that about 75% of those patients were in fact mild, but it would show that the other 25% were presenting with a moderate deficit in their hand.
0: That brings us on, I guess, also to gait. Uh, so you've been heavily involved in looking at assessments for mild myelopathy in terms of gait as well.
4: Yes. So let's go back to the fundamentals. I have a background in physio and gait analysis. And I thought that when we do these assessments in this surgical environment or this clinical environment, they need to be a few things. They need to be fast, they need to be feasible, and they need to be easy to implement. And gait analysis is one of those things that people think is probably really, really hard to do, but it actually takes about five minutes. So I thought it might be ideal to see if we could characterize gait with spatial temporal parameters. We looked at 150 patients, what we wanted to do was find a tool that would detect the differences that patients present when they are mild, because many of the temporal parameters, such as velocity, step length, some of these typical gait parameters are actually in the normal range. So it's a very small change that occurs in balance, or what we call dynamic balance in patients with mild. So we were able to characterize those with um, uh, gait analysis as well.
0: And I'm assuming because these are such mild changes, again, they've probably been missed in the past.
4: Precisely. So much of what we pick up with grass myelopathy and the gait analysis don't typically get picked up with the standard measures that have been used in the field for a number of years.
0: And what is it specifically that you think those two tests have told us about mild myelopathy that we didn't know before?
4: Grass myelopathy is an objective measure. It's, it quantifies the deficit. So it gives us a numerical value that tells us how much deficit there is. We test six of the muscles that we test are the small muscles of the hand. We often pick up a little more deficit. So it's really the small muscles of the hand that show some deficit um, in the mild stage. And we pick that up. We're able to detect three elements, dexterity, sensation, and strength. You also ask, what does gait analysis tell us? If you observe visually a mild a moderate and a severe patient walk right away your trained eye your trained clinical eye will be able to tell you that the severe and the moderate DCM patient have deficit of walking you can see it but if you ask a mild patient to walk they look fairly normal they you know unless you're really looking they look normal and what the gait analysis allows us to do is uncover their gait impairment so a mild patient will often walk at the same speed as normal, or they will have the same step length, but there are some very, very mild deficits that we don't pick up, which is often something called variability of gait. So they have very mild differences in how quickly they step or how consistently they step. And these are the changes that we are able to detect with gait analysis.
0: And I assume then, you know, wearing your other hat as a physio, you would then be able to target therapies or or rehab to those specific deficits in those patients.
4: That's correct. And this is a a big gap in the field right now. What the physical therapist or rehab role is with this mild population, because not everybody needs to have surgery. And there are other things that we can do for this population to help at least manage the disease, educate them about the disease and also keep an eye on the disease. So the disease must be watched. So when patients come to us as mild, we need to keep a very close eye on them. And we need to assess them with sensitive tools periodically to ensure that they are either stable or they are not. And we want to ensure that if they begin to deteriorate, that we can act a little sooner on
0: managing the disease. Absolutely. And I'm sure from the point of view of the person suffering with myelopathy, it must be very nice to have that validated. You know, they feel that there's something wrong, but obviously on the MRI, it doesn't look like there should be. And, you know, for you to be able to assess them and say, actually, yes, there are some deficits there and and we can help you with those must be, you know, really good for their confidence and their thoughts about the future, perhaps.
4: Michelle, you just hit the nail on the head. When we assessed these 150 patients, it was a voluntary enrollment into the study and some people were coming from 3 hours away to have this assessment done. So, we did the first assessment on the day that they had their surgical consultation, so they were already at the hospital. When I asked them if they would be willing to come back in 8 to 12 months, not a single one said no to me. So, not only did we learn that these deficits are mild and we can detect them, etc, we also learned about what The patients really need or want out of that
0: experience. And how do you foresee this better understanding of mild DCM changing our management and treatment of DCM moving forward?
4: I've been working in the field for about 20 years now, and I have seen a shift. So, when I started in the field of spine surgery, you only did surgery on a patient that was practically either dragging their leg behind them or in a wheelchair. You did not go and do surgery in a patient that was walking. So as the field evolves, this information will also help us define time points as to when we should do surgery.
0: What are your recommendations for answering priority four?
4: What's challenging about myelopathy is that there will be no single tool or measurement that's going to be the defining factor. We wanna consider probably three to five tools that are the primary tools that we use all the time.
1: So as a scientist, um, Souk's intensive approach must, must have resonated with you, Michelle.
0: Yes. And I think the level of detail that these assessments can give you is really interesting. And I think the research community really needs this. And of course, it shouldn't go unsaid how labour intensive these types of processes are, but they're highly worth it because the data they produce is so valuable to the scientific community in order to sort of make advances in our understanding and and ideas for the future.
1: Do you think the amount of time required to perform these tests perhaps can limit their their role in clinical practice, which is obviously busier, more time constrained.
0: Yes, and certainly my experience of GRASP, well, this has been in um, spinal cord injury rather than myelopathy, is that it does take time around about 40 minutes. But that said, I think Souk's data shows that GRASP adds this extra dimension clinically and um, you know additional information and as she mentioned of her 100 patient group that all were considered to have mild myelopathy on the mjoa 25 percent of those have more pronounced symptoms when they were assessed with the grasp
1: yeah and i think that's that's key clinical information And as outlined by all our guests that's the kind of information we want to be able to have at our disposal so I guess, it's a balance of time and, and value. And I think clearly that is, that is value added uh, at the moment. But I think going forward, we do need to be mindful that, that the solutions need to be easily delivered in, in clinical practice, as, as well as that, offering that great sensitivity. What were your take-home messages from talking to Souk?
0: Yeah, well, I don't mind admitting that, obviously, from working with the charity, my experience of myelopathy has largely been of dramatic and devastating stories of suffering from our community. So for me, this concept of mild myelopathy hadn't really occurred to me. The idea that someone might have myelopathy, but they would be carrying on with their daily life, working, doing sport, etc., and have no idea was really shocking to me. So I think this is really one of the things um, as a charity we need to focus on in terms of education, making people aware, because, you know, like we hear every day, you know, how rapidly people can move from mild to severe. You know, it really can be life changing. So I think it's really important.
1: I'm sure you're not alone in that um, perception. I think much of healthcare training, our textbooks, our understanding is all informed by much more severe forms of the disease. But one would suspect that this mild group really is the majority of DCM. Uh, you know, we need to identify them. We need to better understand their disease course, and this is going to require more sensitive clinical assessments. So all that remains to be said is. Thanks very much to our guests, Paige Howard, Paul Koljonen and Sukhvinda Kelsey-Ryan for joining us. The podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV.
0: There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for the next item, number five, in our top 10 myelopathy research priorities from AOSpine, the biological basis. Don't miss it.
1: And in order not to miss it, why not subscribe on your favorite podcast app? Until then, goodbye.